Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, that's on page 1003 if you're using the church Bible. As we come to hear the reading of the Word of God, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Let's hear the Word of God. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by Him who said, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. As He says, and also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the Word of God. It's commonly said, isn't it, in the public arena today, all religions are the same sometimes followed up by, and all religions are poison. We're grateful that the society we live in is a society that has, throughout its history, afforded protection and freedom to those who are the followers of all religions and none. But we have to face the fact that we're increasingly in a society that is not less religious, but more religious, more religious with more religions and more irreligious, as secularism grips especially the mass media of communication with which we're saturated every day. And given that that is our context, I think, uh, even if you're not persuaded of the Christian way, that everybody at some point needs to stop, reflect, and reflect on what the Christian faith, among the faiths that are on offer, if you will, uh, has to say. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah promised to the Jews and that He is the Lord of the Christians. You see, the writer to the Hebrews was writing to people who lived in a world very like our own world. In this sense, it was a pluralistic world, a world of many religions, of gods for everything under the sun, the whole pantheon of Greek gods and Roman gods were identified by the people, the pagans, who lived in these days of the first century. The readers particularly of the book of Hebrews had come from a Hebrew background. That is, they had been Jews. That means that in the first century, they belonged to one religion amongst all the others that was getting the attention of many, many more people, especially people from a pagan background, people who were discontented 
with the state of society, with the moral behavior of those in government, those in power, those who worked uh, on the, in the sanctuaries of the various gods and so on, there, there was an increasing sense that, that hu- humanity was being debased by the behavior that was all around him, and that they were faced with a kind of moral bankruptcy. And in that context, Judaism became very attractive. Many Gentiles were following at least the laws of Judaism, were interested in the moral law that Judaism stood for. They were looking for values, and they found in Judaism those values. It was quite an honor in many ways to be a Jew in that context. But these Jews, the Jews who'd received this letter that we call the Hebrews, had taken another step. They had stepped forward into the Christian movement that was new and surprising. And what this letter teaches us is that those Jewish Christians had not ceased to take their Judaism seriously. After all, how could they? Their leader, the one they followed, the one they worshipped, was a Jew. Jesus of Nazareth was a Jew in every respect. Not only that, but their Jewish leader had said, salvation is of the Jews, confirming their sense that their religion had, had moral authority in the world. All of the early leaders of the church, all of the apostles were all to a man Jewish. And if you were to ask anybody in the days in which this letter was written, what Scriptures do you hold to? What, what authoritative Scripture do you believe is without error and has been given by God to humanity? They would have pointed you to the Hebrew Scripture. They understood themselves to be physically in the line of direct descent from the great father Abraham himself, the father of the faith. And even those who weren't Jewish Christians, even if you'd interviewed a Gentile Christian, they would have said the same, that in terms of their descent, they believed they were descended from Father Abraham, who is the model believer. Those ideas are fundamental, uh, fundamentally behind the book of Hebrews. But you would also have discovered, as you talked to these people, that they were claiming not only continuity with the past, but discontinuity with the past. And this was nowhere clearer than with respect to the ceremony and ritual of the priestly system related to the temple in Jerusalem. The author assumes, as you'll read throughout this book, he assumes that the people he's writing to have been there and have observed what goes on there at the temple, and have watched the priests in action doing their job, doing their thing. And now he's going to come and look at the, the ritual and the ceremony of the priesthood and the worship there in the temple at Jerusalem, and he's going to look at it through the lens of those who have so recently become Christians. So, what he's doing here is part of a piece it's what he's been doing since the very beginning of this letter, as he's began by, by speaking about the God 
who had spoken in the past to our fathers, the prophets, and to this new thing that He has done, speaking in these last days through one who is a son, giving a new insight into the nature of the God of Israel. This son, He has told us, is superior to creation. What is His relationship to created reality? He tells us in chapter 1, He is the Creator of all created reality. He's superior to the angels, the angels who are the highest rung in the ladder of creaturely existence. The Son is superior to them and is worshipped by them as God. He is superior to Moses, the first and greatest prophet of Israel, the giver of the law. Uh, he is superior to Moses because he is the one who gave Moses the law to give to Israel. And now he is going to show, first, that Jesus is superior to the priestly caste of Israel, and that he is superior to the whole sacrificial system of the ritual of the temple. We're going to look at the first of those last two things this morning. He is superior to the whole priestly caste. The key verse of this whole section is actually in verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, what he's going to be saying, what he has just said at the end of chapter 4, is that this eternal Son, who has always lived and reigned with, from all eternity as the eternal God, the unchangeable and unchanging Lord of time and space, maker of all things and of all people, has for a little while been found lower than the angels, has taken on our flesh and blood, that He might be capable of death, and that He might solve the great problem of humanity, the sin problem. He's been very careful to begin to disentangle the use of words that describe this individual. He started by calling him a son, and in those opening words we recognize that he's called a son because as a son has the, uh, uh, has the nature of its father, so my father was human, so his son is human. So, when we talk about a son in God, we're talking about one who shares the same nature as God. He is God, the Son. Then he has used the name Jesus. The name Jesus is the name for his humanity, what he is in our flesh and bone, what he is underneath the angels, what he is in the world, capable of death, what he is. Uh, able to sympathize with our weaknesses because He has known our human frame. Here's the mystery of the one who is by nature the Son, that He has made Himself one of us. That's how He is able to learn obedience, as it goes on to say in verse 8. But there's also the use of this third name, which is in fact a title of an office, and it's this word, Christ or Messiah, which is not a name as such as the office in which uh, He is appointed by God. 
And one of the things that the author is going to teach us is, in order to be the Messiah, Jesus has become a high priest, a great high priest. Now, what does he mean by that? What, how do we get our heads around this very strange, esoteric, very old, to do with a temple that no longer exists in Jerusalem, uh, the role that he occupies, and so on? Let me, let me put it like this. You notice in chapter 5 here, the author, first of all, emphasizes the representative function of the high priest. The representative function of the high priest. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. He is explaining why it is that the eternal Son has become Jesus of Nazareth, has taken on our humanity, has taken our flesh and blood, has become like His brothers. This is all language from chapter 2. That He might taste death in order to bring them to God, who is susceptible to weakness and who has experienced temptation. These are all the things that He has said about this Son Jesus. And here he's reflecting on what the law of God required for someone who would act in the role of the Messiah as a high priest over the people of God. Where does he go to find this? He goes to the Scripture. Because in order to discuss anything to do with worship, in order to discuss anything to do with, our, with uh, the way in which people approach God, it, we must go to the way in which God has prescribed that we do that, and we find that in the Scripture. And as you go to the Old Testament, which was their Scripture, and as you read it, you discover that the high priest has to be selected out of humanity generally and out of the children of Israel particularly, Exodus chapter 28 and verse 1. Because God has decreed, you see, that just as a man was responsible for the unraveling of our human existence, that a man, a human being, a man should be responsible for getting all those disparate parts and reintegrating the life that has been shattered by sin. Unless we get that in our heads, then we will always be confused about the Son of God and the Trinity and who God is and so on. There's a very clear line. God had to take on our humanity in order that in our humanity He might, not, he might do what He could not do in Himself. As man, He had to deal with the damage that sin had caused. And so, if our high priest is able to represent us, then he must be of us. He must take our nature if he's going to act on our behalf. You see, what is the role of the Christ, the Messiah, the high priest in this case? It is the role of a mediator. A mediator gets in the middle of two opposing parties and hopefully reconciles, brings reconciliation between them. And what humanity needs is not a mediator who will merely mediate between two sides within a human problem. These people 
out at odds with these people, and the mediator reconciles them. That's not the issue. The real issue is the problem between man and God. The real problem is that we are alienated from God. The very need for a priest presupposes alienation, a breakdown in relationship between people and God, a barrier between people and God, the inability for people to reach God, reach out to God, have a relationship with God. The priest is put in place in Scripture in order to reconcile people to God. That's why the Apostle Paul puts it like this, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. You notice the emphasis there, the man, Messiah Jesus. And so, the emphasis here is on the representative function of the high priest. He uses this word, appointed. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. In other words, this is not something someone can take on of themselves. They cannot self-appoint themselves to the office of a high priest, which is why in the in the economy of God's work in relation to our salvation, the three members of the Trinity adopt particular roles within the, the economy, within the work of our salvation. Because a high priest, because the Christ, because the apostle of our salvation has to be sent as a human being to do this work, the Father has to be the one who sends Him. The Father has to be the one who anoints Him. The Father has to be the one who appoints Him to the task that He has to undertake. And this is true, by the way, of all the priests, all the human priests. It's true of ministers. It's true of anybody who is called to serve God. It is God who appoints them. They do not appoint themselves. They are not self-appointed people nor do they look for other things other than the things towards which God has appointed them. They're ordained by God. Now, there's a lesson here. There's a lesson here, I think, for everybody going into any form of Christian work at any point in their lives. Uh, this applies to them. Thomas Aquinas, in his day, given his circumstances, applies this passage. He can't help himself. In his exposition of Hebrews, which is quite brilliant, really, uh, he, in his exposition of Hebrews, he can't avoid applying it to some very sensitive issues in his own day, and he says this, the, the high priest is not appointed for the sake of glory, or prestige, we might say, or for the sake of amassing riches, nor for the sake of enriching relatives. He's thinking of the way in which these things were all tied up. And by the way, you see this in some televangelists, and you see this in some of these corrupt uh, religious leaders today, that they, they get the job, and then their wife gets the job, and then their son gets the job, and so on, and it becomes a, t a dynasty or a dynasty, or however you say the word. Uh, uh, that, that's what he's addressing. This happened back then in the Middle Ages. And he goes on to say this, if he asks how much he's going to be paid, his attitude is not pastoral, but mercenary. And he goes on to say, high priests therefore should not entangle themselves in secular business and neglect the things that pertain 
to God. And it's applicable even to our day as it was then in the high Middle Ages. The high priest does not appoint himself, but is appointed by God. And the reason for that is that it wants to blow away pride and ambition, and it wants to cultivate a spirit of humility and service. Our Lord Jesus famously said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Why did He take on our humanity? Philippians 2 tells us, He took on our humanity, and in taking on our humanity, He became a servant, the servant of the Lord. And He did this in order that He might serve us with our salvation. And in the role of a servant, He committed Himself in that role in His humanity to be obedient to His heavenly Father in all that He did in His life. And what was, was, what was His life? What is the work of the, of the priest? He tells us here, it is to act on behalf of men in relation to God. That is representing men to God and God to men. If He presides over them, He does it in the name of God. If He declares the will of God to them, it's in God's name. If He blesses them, it is with God's blessing. And in that which He has to do towards God, He appears in their name. He represents their persons. And the Lord Jesus, in becoming human, and in being appointed the anointed Messiah of Israel, came to represent humans, came to represent His people. And when He entered the Holy of Holies in heaven, He did so on behalf of His people. And what the high priest did on earth, taking the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat as a token that the animal had been killed, the Lord Jesus did in an even greater sense when He entered heaven itself, the ultimate sanctuary, and there made peace with God on our behalf with His own blood, the blood of His cross, and became the guarantor of a better relationship, a better covenant between God and His people. He acts for us in matters related to God. And you notice it goes on to say that these these uh, old priests of Israel particularly had to offer gifts and sacrifices to God. He has in mind the great Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, uh, two animals were taken. One was killed. Its blood was taken by the high priest in behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled the mercy seat there, the throne of grace, because those sacrifices were essentially propitiatory sacrifices, which means they were designed to displace or divert judicial justified wrath, 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 off the offender onto the, onto the, onto the one who is acting in their place, the innocent substitute who is sacrificed on their behalf. And only then can sins be cleansed, washed away, purified, 
once justified judicial wrath, wrath is out the way, then the pardon, then the, pur- the purification can take place. And from chapter 1, verse 3, that is what's been on the sidelines of the author as he looks at the coming of the Son into the world and taking on our nature. It is ultimately that He might purify us from our sins. And we are being taught the representative function of a high priest is to stand in for us, doing what we cannot do for ourselves, dealing with the sin problem between people and God. And that is what our Lord Jesus came into the world to do. But secondly, we see that as a high priest, a high priest is responsible for the sensitive compassion towards people, the sensitive compassion of the high priest. Look what it says. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. There's a general principle there for priests in the Old Covenant that is applicable to leaders and shepherds in the New Covenant, the body of Christ. And it's this, as Paul says on one occasion, be gentle to all and patient and bear with the evils and the weaknesses of others. That was one of the great features of Moses. Moses, that outstanding leader in the Old Covenant, we're told about him, he was a man meek above everyone on the face of the earth. The Apostle Paul shows the same quality. He says, my little children, he writes in Galatians, to a church that really was misbehaving in so many ways, my little children, he says, for whom I have travail in pain again. You see, cruel and hard-hearted men are not fit to be ministers in God's church. When the Apostle Paul writes to the Colossians, he's talking to every Christian, talking to all of us here, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. That's the kind of sensitive compassion required of a high priest. In other words, the Old Testament priest, like the New Testament believer, is to be conscious all the time of two things. One, their frailty, and two, their fallenness. One, their frailty. That is frailty, the frailty of being human. We human beings are frail people. We get tired. We get hungry. We get antsy when we're tired and hungry. We get confused, forgetful, stressed, anxious. Living in the body, living in this world, living with all the pressures of modern existence, living with your phone when you can't find it, living with all of these things in our everyday ordinary life. That's to see if you were awake. These things remind us of our frailty. When you get a man cold, which we all know is far more serious than anything anyone else has ever experienced, and you think life is coming to an end, we're reminded of our frailty. 
And then, of course, there's the frailty of death itself. The disintegration of the body, the destruction of the body, the ultimate death itself. Frailty. But we're also conscious of our fallenness. We commit sins consciously and subconsciously, like everybody else. The leader, the minister, the priest does the same. It's absolutely imperative for the Christian that we know our hearts, that we know we are both frail and fallen, that we know these things, but we should not be crippled by them. We should not be silenced from confronting sin because we're aware of our own sin. But we do need to be reminded again and again and again of our frailty and our fallenness. In the words of a song by a band called DC Talk, which is ancient, after talking about a number of circumstances, the line that says, this only serves to confirm my suspicion that I am a man in need of a Savior. I can, I can never forget that. You must never forget that. We are men and women in need of a Savior. And so the earthly high priest then offered a sacrifice for his own sins. Do you notice that? He sacrifices not only for others, but he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. The leaders of the Old Covenant, the leaders of the New Covenant are the same in this respect that they are sinners who need to confess their sin. They need to address their sin. They need to ask God to pardon their sin. That's the reality. And here's the reality when it comes to our Lord Jesus. He was subject to the frailty of the flesh. We've already been told that He was subjected to weakness. He's able to sympathize with our weakness because He knew our weakness in the flesh. He knew what it is to experience all the things that flesh is heir to. He knew and He encountered the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. He endured tiredness and hunger, pain and suffering, betrayal and mockery. And He was liable to the ultimate weakness of death itself. He may not have known what it is to be fallen but He knew our frailty, and He knew our frailty to the greatest degree. And that frailty, that weakness of human flesh, the weakness of who we are, uh, the, the things, our limitations, the limitations of our knowledge, you see that even in the Lord Jesus, in His humanity. He knew our weakness. And uh, although He was without sin, For it was fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. We did not need a high priest who was fallen like us. We needed a high priest who was frail like us. Because what we needed was not a loser, but a winner. What we needed was someone who could undo and unravel all the damage that Adam had done in the beginning. Tempted in all points like we are, feeling the weight of temptation more acutely even than we do. 
We needed Jesus to overcome temptation because we are usually overcome by temptation. Well, for those who occupied the role of the priest, they occupied this role so that they were able to to help the ignorant and the wayward. Those two words there in verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. The ignorant are those who have uh, sinned in ignorance or unconsciously. You know, there is such a thing as inadvertent sin. Atonement, therefore, has to be made both for sins known and unknown. And then there's the wayward, those who have gone off down a path with their lives, which has led them away from the grace of God, away from restoration to the people of God. They need to be chased up and brought back home. And a good priest will deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, just as we should do within the church of Jesus Christ. And our great high priest, he is the one. We find him doing this all over the Gospels, don't we? We find him being this kind of high priest in the way he deals with people. He's not afraid to chase them up and call them to repent. He's not afraid to draw down the woes of heaven upon them if they won't listen with a view to encouraging them to repent. But when the fallen woman is brought to him, he doesn't reject her, but he accepts her, pardons her, and changes her life. When the dishonest tax collector is uh, sitting at his desk and Jesus calls him to follow him, that the guy is, is prompted to go and deal with all the debts that he's incurred wrongly. He's talking to this ignorant Samaritan woman, a, a different religion really in many ways, God's own way from, from Judaism, gone down a, a cul-de-sac. What does he do? He reaches out to her. He teaches her stuff that he hadn't taught to any of the Jews even at that stage. He reaches out to her in love, and she goes off to tell people she's found the Savior of the world. That's what kind of high priest Jesus is, sensitive, compassion. So, no matter what your baggage this morning, the Lord Jesus Christ is our great high priest, knows about it, number one. And the fact that I'm talking to you this morning from the Word of God is saying to you, whatever your baggage, whatever you're brought with you, whatever burden you're carrying, whatever failures you're trying to get away from, whatever past you're running from, there's mercy. Mercy in Christ. Grace and mercy for you. Well, the third element in this little passage is the distinctive vocation of our great high priest, because it is distinctive. There are relationships that I've drawn between what the ordinary high priest was called to do, and, and Jesus fulfills those. But do you notice the distinctive vocation, calling of our Lord Jesus? So also Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a high priest. He did not exalt Himself. Here's here's the thing. If Jesus had not humbled Himself to become the servant of the Lord, then He may very, very well have come into the world and in talking to you said, I'm both God and man, and as God I'm telling you that I've sent Myself. 
I'm here to tell you what to do. He didn't do that. That would have been inappropriate to his humanity and inappropriate to his high priesthood. It was inappropriate to his high priesthood because in order to be a high priest, a human high priest who would do the stuff for us we needed him to do, he had to be sent. So the Father sends him, anoints him to be our great high priest. That's not saying anything about the eternal Son's relationship to the Father. It's saying everything about the human Jesus who is the Messiah sent by the Father. But more than that, as a human being, what are human beings meant to do? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It is to glorify God, which is why Jesus, as a man, regularly, over and over and over again, says something like this, as he says in John chapter 8, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. He was, as a man throughout his entire earthly life, committed to giving glory to God. That's what he lived for. As the Son of God, the Father delighted to glorify Him But the Son as Son in our human flesh, acting on our behalf, delighted to bring glory to His Father in heaven. Don't mistake that and read all that back into the Godhead. He is acting in His office as the Messiah and in His humanity as Jesus of Nazareth. And He does all that on our behalf. He does that because the Father has begotten Him from all eternity, and because the Father has designated Him a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, as we wind up this morning, let me put it to you like this. This Jesus, the human person, came into the world born of a virgin, This Christ, designated by God as our great high priest and king, this one who as Christ would offer himself on the altar of Calvary to die as the sacrifice that would turn away the wrath of God from us unto himself. This Christ, I offer him to you in the gospel. Believe in this Christ, this Messiah, this Jesus, and He will bring you to God. He is the mediator between God and man, and when you put your faith and trust in Him, He reconciles you to God. He he takes away the alienation. He nails the alienation to His cross, and He brings us into the life of God and makes us the adopted children of God. And today you may enjoy this. Today you may receive this. Today you 
might be able to be reconciled to the God who made you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take your word today and that you would drive it home to our hearts, that you would cause it to achieve your purpose in our lives. We pray that you would please make the Lord Jesus very precious and lovely to us, we ask you. In his strong name, amen.